0: Preaching during Christmas can be challenging. And the reason why it's challenging is because um, so you're given this are given an opportunity to preach. But what do you preach about? Everybody's heard the Christmas stories before. You know, you've got the stories of the three wise men. We get the story of Jesus being born in a manger the stories of the, uh, the shepherds in the field with the angels. And it's like, what can I possibly say differently that you guys haven't already heard before, or you haven't seen before? And then you have to sort of step back and say, okay, what is Christmas really about? What is, when we look at Christmas, what are we really looking forward to as we approach Christmas? What are we celebrating? You see there's many things that we love about Christmas time. You often hear these phrases all the time about joy and peace on earth and giving and just goodwill toward men. But there's also an aspect of Christmas and the Christmas story that is often overlooked or it's one that we often struggle with in our own lives, but it truly defines why Jesus came. I told the first group I'm like to be honest with you guys I'm getting to the point in my life and in my walk where I'm tired of talking, or I'm not saying talking, I'm tired of learning about Jesus. I'll be honest with you. I'm tired of learning about Jesus. And I've gotten to the point in my life now where I'm like, I want my life to be the gospel. I don't just want to learn facts and figures anymore. I want my life to be just like Christ's life. I want my life to be the gospel, to literally step into a world in which everything is defined by the gospel. And what I want to do today is I want to touch on something that affects every single one of us in this room. And the question that we have to answer and the decision that we have to make is will we continue to live this way or will the gospel affect us And will we look at this just as head knowledge or will we allow our lives to be the gospel too? I want to look at Christmas from a different angle this morning. And I'm going to look at it from a letter that Paul wrote the Philippian church. I'm going to look at something he says right there because he talks to them about unity and he talks to them about humility. Unity, living in unity with one another And it's done through humility. And what I want you to walk away with and see today is this, that true humility is found in Christ. True humility is found in Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is that we walk away today with a much deeper appreciation for Christ and what Christmas truly, truly means. Before we get started, you guys, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you would clear our minds, clear our hearts, Lord, to hear from you, that you would speak to us today through your word, Father. Convict us, Lord, where do we fall short? Where in our lives are we falling short, Lord? And that we would give this over to you, Lord, and ask that you would change us, Lord, change us into the image of Christ, because that's what you've called us to do, Father. Father, we just ask this and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be starting today and looking at everyone's favorite Christmas passage, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. So Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8 is what we're going to look at. And for those of you that don't have a Bible, we have it up uh, up on the screen. And I want to start with just the first two verses. So verses 3 in verses through, 4. And it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is doing in this letter right here is writing to the church in Philippi. And what he's saying to them is, I want you guys to live in unity with one another. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to be of the same love. I want you to be in full accord with one another. And he says, this is unity and this is how you were called to live. This is how we live in unity. And he says, so he goes on to verse 3 and says, don't live this way. Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition literally is where it talks about the advancement of yourself. It's the promotion of of yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambitions and do nothing from conceit. Conceit is literally thinking too highly of yourself. It's a preoccupation. It's an excessive self-interest. Everything is about you. You know the funny thing is our lives are defined by this. I think about my own life. My whole life is selfish ambition. My whole life is conceit because all I do is worry about myself all day, every day. It's the result of sin we are obsessed with getting our own way and getting our own advantage that's how we live it's interesting because all of us live this same way there are seven billion little gods walking around this earth all thinking it's about them that's how we live that's an everyday reality of how each and every one of us lives every single day. And what he says is this pride promotes conflict. Well, you can see, it's easy to see, right? If it's about me and it's about you, we're going to have a problem, right? But what he says is humility. Humility is what promotes harmony. And he says, and what humility is, it's looking at other people as more significant and more important and worthy than yourself. It's literally a lowering of yourself. Where the world says it's about self-assertedness and imposing your will on other people, Paul's saying it's about lowering yourself in humility toward other people. He says it's looking at other people's interests, looking at other people's interests, not just your own. It's a having a concern for the needs and the concerns of other people. The question is how do we do this well give you a hint it's stepping into somebody else's life it's literally this idea of stepping into somebody else's life why is it hard because of our sin our sin makes it extremely difficult because everything that we do is is on our own self-will you know the more i grow in my faith it's funny how this works if you had told me this before i'd never believe you I would, I would think that as I grow in my faith, that I would uh, tend to think of myself as uh, as being better, being more Christ-like. But you know what happens as I grow in my faith? I begin to see my, more of my faults. I begin to see like, wow, sin really is a part of my life in every area of my life in, in ways that even I, that I think are honorable, are still tinged with sin. It permeates everything. I mean, in the Christian life, it's easy because I'll start a small group, well, how many people came to my small group? I only had three people in my small group. Hmm. Or how many sermons do I get to preach? It's there. It's everywhere. It's in every single thing that we do. I'm reading a book right now called The Marriage Builder by Larry Crabb. It's a really good book. I've read a lot of different books on marriage, uh, but this is one that... That really has struck me personally because it gives like different examples. And I'm like, this is so true. It was literally, I'm like, I read this book and I'm like, it was written for me. It was written for me. And I'm like, I don't know what secrets he knows about my life, but I'm like, he's based a book on my life. So one of the things that he says is uh, in the very beginning, in the garden, man found his security and his significance from God, from his relationship with God. And because of sin, what was once something that we already had, now has become a need. We need to feel secure, and we need to feel significant in our lives. And what happens is we try to find it in everything outside of God. So what happens is we go, we get married, and now I look at my wife and say, you need to make me feel secure and significant. I have this need to feel secure and significant. And guess how my wife looks at me? You need to make me feel secure and significant. And you've got two people who can never possibly make each other feel secure and significant looking at each other like, what's the problem? You see, when we first got married, we lived with my father. And um, so as any woman would want, she wants to have a house and to nest, you know, so my wife had this desire for us to have a house, but my thought was, well, no, I'm going to do church planning. And I don't want to choose a house right now, because if we do, what if we move to a totally different area? So I'm not going to, um, we can't move right now. But what I realized was that it was about me. It was about my own selfish will, because even though it's honorable to do church planning, I was like, you need to get on board with what I'm doing because my significance is found in church planning. So I needed to get my wife. So one of the things he talks about in the book is this idea of manipulation versus ministry. See, what I was doing was I was manipulating my wife so that I could feel that my needs were being met in church planning. And what he says is, no, what we need to do is we need to minister to our spouses. What does that mean? I need to minister to my spouse and to love her so that she sees her security and significance in Jesus, not me. How do I do that? I lower myself. I humble myself. You see, even in those honorable things that we do, we're still tinged with sin. Everything that we do is about us. The question is, how do I live a life of humility? Because, Keith, I understand what you're saying, and it sounds wonderful, but if I'm worried about everybody else, then who's worried about me? What about my rights? What about my feelings and my needs? The problem is we try to live this way without God. We're trying to do it in our own sinful strength. You can't do it without God. So if you say, I can't possibly live this way, I say, yes, you are exactly right. You cannot do it, but Christ can. Because that's exactly what he did. True godly love is humble. True godly love counts other people as more worthy. True godly love looks at other people's interests. And true godly love looks at other people and steps into their life. And begins to bear their burdens too. To have unity, you've got to have humility. There has got to be humility where we value other people's more significant than ourselves and we look to other people's interests just like we look to our own. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying right here in the first couple of verses. And now what he does, he goes on to explain this is how it's done. Verses 5 through 8. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What he says in verse 5 is, five is six, have this mind among yourselves. This should be your mindset. Be just like Jesus. Do what he did. Make the choice And let it become your life. That I'm going to imitate Jesus in everything that he did. And then he goes on to describe exactly what Jesus did in the incarnation. You see, the first thing that Jesus did, Jesus, the Son of God, entered our world. Jesus, the Son of God, entered our world. It was Jesus, in his obedience to his Father, that led to him coming into our world world you see jesus gives us a clue when you look in john 6 when he says for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me the incarnation this god becoming flesh is the result of jesus being obedient to his father in eternity jesus came and when it says in scripture when paul says right here in verse 6 being in the form of god what he says is jesus is divine jesus is divine yet what he did was he didn't account equality with god something to be grasped jesus didn't come here and exploit his divinity for his own purposes jesus didn't come here and exercise his deity at the expense of other people jesus was already god he just came and he chose not to cling to it jesus came here and he emptied himself He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He was still divine. He still had divine attributes. He did not remove his identity as God, but what he did was he took human nature and he added it to himself. Jesus lowered himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself by becoming human. He emptied himself of his glory. That's why he goes later on in the book of John when he says, and he's praying to his father, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, in eternity, the Father commissioned the Son who laid aside his glory with the Father to give his life for our forgiveness and for renewal. When we see the story of Christmas, what we see is the story of Jesus entering into our world he incarnated he became flesh you know we also see it in how jesus entered the lives of people you see one of the things that the apostle paul says when he goes in and talks about what this idea of self-emptying means was he added the human nature to himself but he says he took the form of a servant he literally became a slave. He became a slave. He deprived himself of divine glory. He was born the likeness of men, which means he truly and completely became human. Yet, he didn't have sin. And he says he was found, being found in human form. He was a real human with all the attributes of humanity. Jesus became a man. And what he did, when you look at his life here, he began to go to people and enter into each of their lives individually. I think about the story of the widow of Nain. This is a woman who had lost her husband. She had lost her son, so she lost her security, and she lost uh, her provision. And Jesus, these two crowds are approaching each other, and if anybody, Jesus, his eyes are directly on her, and he goes and he enters into her life, and he begins to bear her burdens to the point where he raises the son from the dead. I think about the story of uh, this sinful woman in the house of the Pharisee, and as they're there, she comes up to Jesus and she's wiping his feet with her tears. And the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know the type of woman that's wiping his feet. Jesus is entering into her world because he's offering her forgiveness and compassion. I think about Jesus on the street with the beggar, the blind beggar. And as his disciples walk by, the look of him and say, like, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus, again, has to refocus them to step into this world. Look at this man and have compassion on him. Jesus' whole life was defined by going to people and stepping into their world and bearing their burdens, and it's Jesus' bearing people's burdens that ultimately led him to the cross, to ultimately bear the burdens for all of us. That's the gospel message Jesus stepping into our world and stepping into our lives so that we would have forgiveness by taking on our sins. Jesus surrendered to his Father. Jesus willingly laid down his life. His Father told him to come, and he came, and he laid down his life. Jesus, in the Gospel, and Jesus on the cross, you see, He didn't come with selfish ambitions or conceit. Jesus was humble because He counted other people's more worthy than Himself. Jesus didn't look at His own interests, but He looked at the interest of others first. He looked at fulfilling His Father's will, and He looked at us, and He said that we needed salvation. And He humbled Himself and He lowered Himself. So that we would have salvation jesus chose to do what his father had asked him to do and he was obedient to his father fully and it's his obedience to his father that led to his own death death in one of the most shameful ways during that time death on the cross you see what the apostle paul is saying is if you want to have true unity you've got to have humility You've got to look at other people and say they are more significant than me. You've got to look at other people and look to their interest more than my own because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He is the ultimate example of what humility is. Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He entered our world. He enters our lives individually. And now, through us, He enters into other people's lives. You see, Paul talks about humbling yourself and counting others as more significant and looking at other people's interests more. When we live like Christ, that's what we do. But it's hard. It is absolutely hard to go from a life in which everything is about me to now living a life in which it's about other people first. But how do we do it? We have to allow Christ to live through us, and we have to incarnate with other people. We have to literally step into their worlds. You see, the first thing we do, we learned from our last sermon series in Colossians, is you close your, clothe yourself in righteousness first. I realize that my security, my need to feel loved and secure, and my significance, which is my purpose for life, is only filled with Christ. So when I operate now, I operate in the fullness of knowing that then instead of the emptiness of having this desire and this need to have to constantly be met in other people and in their opinions and what I'm doing and how much money I'm making, and what job position I have. And now I operate and live my life from the fullness of who I am already. And now... What I do is I begin to move toward people and I begin to incarnate with them and step into their world and step into their lives. I humble myself. But I'll tell you this, is when you incarnate with other people, you are going to feel like you are losing. Many times, you're going to feel like you're losing. You're going to feel weak. You're going to feel pain. It's going to feel sometimes humiliating. But that's how we're called to live. Because that's exactly what Christ did, and it's in the midst of that incarnation, it's in the midst of feeling pain and feeling weakness that I cry out to who? I cry out to my Father. I say, Lord, I need you right now because I'm getting angry. I need your life in me right now, Lord. You see what it is? Every day it's the constant communion with my Father. I need you, Lord. Give me the words with which to say, help me to love this person because they just said something to me, and I know what my first reaction wants to be. Lord, I need you. I feel like I'm losing right now in my life, and I feel weak. It's my weakness. It's my humility that constantly takes me back up to my Father. And I'm telling you, you will know God in ways and see God work in ways that you never imagined. That was exactly what Jesus did. You see, Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I hear from my Father, unless my Father tells me. That's how I live. Jesus lived every moment of his life with communion with his Father because he realized that's where life comes from. That's why when he says to the woman at the well... After the woman at the well and the disciples come back and ask him about eating food, he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. That's what gets me going. That's what drives me in my life is my Heavenly Father. Jesus understood about communion with his Heavenly Father. And as I draw close to people and as I hear people's honest comments and as I get into relationship with people, it's going to feel very painful. But I keep running back to my Father and saying, Lord, I need your help right now lord i need you it's a constant movement to god and it's a humility to the point where i feel like i'm dying in my life and when i die i have resurrection through who christ that's the christian life that's the christian life and this dummy right here is finally getting it (laughs) it took me this long i'm finally understanding this i'm finally understanding this you know what hurts a lot is constructive criticism That's honesty right you're hearing about how you're not doing something well and you feel like you're dying it's painful but that's when I say Lord I know my security my significance comes from you help me operate from the fullness of that Lord and help me to love other people and to accept what people are saying to me right now we're called to humble ourselves like Christ incarnate step into somebody else's world step into somebody else's shoes Understand and become like them, and begin to bear their burdens, because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. I've shared with you guys before. Um, in 2011, my mother passed away, and she died of a, a disease. It was an incurable disease called um, amyloidosis, and so she was on um, chemo. And if any of you have ever had a family member on chemo, it's it's rough. It is rough. And so when you have a family member that's dealing with something like that, it's really hard because you don't know what to do. Talk about feeling weak. You don't know how to respond. You don't know what to do. You feel utterly powerless. Well, what happened was at that time, I would often go over to my mom's house and and. And, and I'd always be telling, you know, like, you got to eat healthier, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. You see, what's happened is even in the midst of that right there, I was still trying to make it about me because if I could get her to eat healthy, it makes me feel better about myself and the position right now. And what I should have done was incarnate. You see, because all my mom wanted was for somebody to step into her world and bear her burdens with her. It's probably the biggest regret that I have is that I didn't spend more time just incarnating, lowering myself, humbling myself. But you feel weak, and you feel pain. But it's that moment right there that we draw close to God and say, God, this is not comfortable. I need you more than anything, Father. I need you more than anything in my life. I draw life from him when I humble myself, when I move toward people. It is painful. It is painful in a sinful world when you draw close to people. You are going to feel weak, and you're going to have to humble yourself. And when you do, you will know the Heavenly Father in ways that you would never, ever imagine in your life. You see, it finally makes sense to me when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That's love. Love. That is what God did for us. Destroy the eye and put the Father's life in you. Incarnation leads to unity. Incarnation leads to communion with the Heavenly Father. I want to leave you with this one last story. And it's a story that you might be familiar with. It says this. Of God who entered our world and our lives. It's the story of a God that was born in an obscure, oppressed place. It's the story of a God that was born into poverty among a despised people. It's the story of a God that came as small and vulnerable as humans come as a child. It's a story of a God who didn't come to exalt himself in worldly ways, but came and did it through humble service. It's a story where God sent his only son into our world as a human. It's a story in which the son entered our world in humility. Paul is pointing toward unity in the body. But we get unity when we live just like Christ. When we live just like Jesus, by lowering ourselves in humility. That's what God did. He lowered himself by stepping into our world. And we have communion with God because of what Christ did. That's the Christmas story. The greatest gift we can share with anyone is Christ. Because that was the gift that was given to us. Pray with me.